thank y'all for attending tonight this workshop. If we haven't met, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Trinity, and more specifically, I have stewardship over pastoral care for our church. And Amy Winkle, as well, one of our pastors, is joining me, and she's going to be sharing uh, the teaching tonight alongside me. I'm really excited to hear from her as well. Um, you know, hosting these wellness workshops is one aspect of pastoral care that, that I really love, taking time to dive deeper into topics that are directly connected to our spiritual, emotional, our physical wellness even. Um, in some sense, you may call these workshops kind of like preventative care. Um, and in particular, we really like to try to address topics that are, that are very timely, very relevant, and frankly, sometimes that aren't addressed with as much nuance and particularity uh, that is required. Sometimes that just takes more time. And so a workshop is uh, a good venue for that. And frankly, in my opinion, forgiveness uh, is one of those nuanced topics. Um, depending on who you are, what your story is, when you hear the word forgiveness, lots of different ideas and probably feelings come up for you. Um, no doubt forgiveness has so many different layers. We're not going to pretend tonight to do an exhaustive treatment of all aspects of forgiveness in just two hours. Um, I mean, just to name one big thing, what we've experienced over the past couple of years in our country, especially around racial reckoning, I mean, the idea of forgiveness and the attendant ideas that come with it, like justice and lament and reconciliation, well, that just really deserves a special kind of exploration, especially when we start talking about generational harm that has come at the hand of entire systems and structures. And what does forgiveness even look like on that scale? So I just want to say from the outset that we're not going to attempt to tackle that huge topic tonight, but it does need to be named. And then on the other end of the spectrum, when it comes to forgiveness for the more basic daily offenses, we both receive and give. When you were short with your wife this morning, you raised your voice at your son last night, you forgot to call your friend back. How to engage forgiveness in those more everyday occurrences is, is probably also not why you signed up um, for this workshop. Rather, what Amy and I want to dive into tonight more specifically is forgiveness in personal relationships, and in particular, forgiveness for harm that is deeper and older, maybe, more complex. The kind of forgiveness that when we think about struggling with forgiveness, that's the kind of uh, forgiveness that comes up when we call those things to mind. And how is that forgiveness informed by what Jesus has already done for us on the cross? And what does it even mean what does it look like to follow Jesus's example of forgiveness, particularly when the harm against us is deep and old? So yeah, light, light discussion on tap for tonight. Um, in this teaching, we hope to not just talk at you for two straight hours. We're going to mix in some time for personal reflection as well as for group discussion. The group discussions will simply place you in Zoom breakout rooms. Um, and we're not gonna ask you to like name all the people you can't forgive. We're going to keep the topics 
at a, at a level that it, that is comfortable to hopefully to to discuss have profitable discussion with people you may not know um, because I think it is good to process some of the things we're learning in real time. And I just believe, and I'll just say in Jesus' name, that all the technical Zoom logistics are going to work out. But if something, uh, if we hit a snag, I just ask that you would have grace for us. I think we're all pros at that by now. Um, pros at being ready for snags in technology, I should say, not pros at Zoom. Um, so I think before Amy begins, we need to go to Jesus and we need to invite the Holy Spirit because this is a very heavy topic, which no doubt brings up all kinds of feelings for everyone. So let's just begin by asking the Spirit to be with us tonight. Holy Spirit, we ask just that. Lord, that you would come, that you would be near to us, God, and that you would increase our awareness of your presence with us, God. Jesus, no doubt, with a collection of a few dozen people, there are really difficult stories around this idea of forgiveness. Lots of tender hearts, perhaps calloused hearts. And God, I just know that you want to place your hand there and want to be close. So Lord, open us up to what you might have to say to us tonight, God. Give us ears to hear your truth. Lord, attune our hearts to yours. Help us to discern where there may be an invitation for us tonight, maybe to do more reflection or maybe to take action. God, we just ask that you would give us your heart, which is a heart not just for forgiveness, but for reconciliation, for a rejoining of deep abiding relationship. God, may it be so. May we be increasingly the kind of people that are leaving in our way folks who have been touched by forgiveness and reconciliation, Lord, folks who have known something of what it means to come in contact with the kingdom of God. God, we ask these things in your name and ask for your grace in this time. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to kick it to Amy now, who is going to start off and do the first half of our teaching tonight. Good evening, everyone. It's good to be with you. I'm glad to get to explore this topic more with, with each of you. And um, just thank you, Jason, for praying for us. And we do just pray um, as we jump into this time, just that God would illuminate our hearts and our minds. Um, so and the way that we're going to start off is by looking at scripture um, and by looking at the biblical narrative to say, what does the Bible have to say about forgiveness um, and about how God um, thinks about this topic and uh, how close it is to his heart. And so, um, so we're going to explore some biblical topics tonight or text tonight um, around that topic and hope that it helps as we try to dive into some of the more practical parts and um, personal parts of it to have kind of a framework of just how God envisions this and, and what it means um, for us as his people. 
So when we um, when we look at the biblical text, when we look at scripture, what we see in the overarching narrative of scripture is this idea that God's heart is bent toward forgiveness and reconciliation. So it's something that like, I mean, it literally sits in the heart of God. And so if we are his people and meant to be formed into his likeness, it means that we're called to the task of forgiveness and reconciliation as well, even though it's not, not an easy task, not, um, it, it can be very difficult at times. And yet um, God has given us a, a picture. He's given us um, a story to be a part of and kind of led the way, so to speak, um, when it comes to forgiveness and reconciliation. And we get to follow him into that, which I think in a lot of ways um, makes it uh, you know, kind of a comforting kind of thing that God's not asking us to do something that he is not, has not already done himself and is not will, willing to do himself. Um, but that he has like kind of given us uh, charted a course for us in some ways, um, so that we can follow him in it. So I want us to, to look at that related to the biblical text tonight and just kind of get a sense of, of the picture of God's story, God's heart in the midst of that, and then how we're meant to follow him, um, in, in that. So when we look at um, what we call the, the meta-narrative of scripture, the overarching uh, story of scripture, um, we see four movements, um, creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. Like if you look at the whole of the story of scripture, it lays out that way. So we start with creation. So this um, idea of the people of, of, of God, these people that God have created, he's put them in the garden and they have um, unfettered access to God. They're in his presence. They're, um, they're in, you know, they're um, in harmony with one another and with him and all of creation. Um, and that is how God kind of created things to be from the very beginning. Um, it took two chapters um, before everything came crashing down in the fall. Um, and so uh, we see the, we see humans sin against God, decide to rebel, rebel against God. Um, and in so doing, what it means is the consequences that they have to leave the garden. And what the scripture says, what Genesis says, is that, they, that Adam and Eve leave the garden and the, the gates are closed behind them. And they can't return into Eden, into the garden where they have this um, uninterrupted communion with God. And so what we see from the very beginning of scripture is this idea of broken relationship. That by being um, separated from the garden, by being cast out of the garden, there's a break in relationship that comes as consequence to their sin um, and rebellion against God. But what we also see happening almost immediately in scripture is God looking for ways to repair the relationship, to find ways to bring them back into relationship with one another. And so as we go throughout the Old Testament, what we see is God making covenant with people, with his people. So he does it first through Noah. Um, and then with Abraham and then Moses and then David, but over and over again, God making covenant um, with his people as a way to say, this is how I'm going to restore relationship. Because what covenant does is that it, um, it, it lists, it kind of gives the parameters for relationship. It says, I'm going to do these things and you're going to do these things. And that's how we're going to live together. So when two people get married, they come before the, the, the pastor and from, from their friends and family, and they make covenant with each other, right? They say, here's how we're going to live together. And so what we see happening in the Bible time and time again, especially in the Old Testament, leading up to the new covenant that we see with Jesus is God saying away, saying, here's, here's how we're going to be in relationship because things aren't like they were in the garden. So we've got to find a way to move forward. And so he continues to come to the people, his people and say, this is how we're going to live together. So when we get to like the Moses, the, the covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, 
in the wilderness, in the law, Torah, what God is saying is, here's how you're, and you look at the Ten Commandments, it says, this is how we're going to live with each other. So there's, here's how you're going to live with me. And then here's how you're going to live with each other. And so God trying to somehow like bring about um, a, a re restoration in some ways, a redemption of this break that's happened in relationship. Um, and so, so this is God's like, story of redemption that's that's like kind of taking stair steps it's like one step on top of the other one step on top of the other that's leading to Jesus which is basically God coming himself and saying I'm going to prepare the relationship myself like I'm going to find a way I'm coming and I'm living among you and I'm I'm, I'm doing the, the work myself so that we can be restored or the relationship can be restored and so that's where we are now, right? And the already not yet in that place of like, we're living the work that Jesus has done to bring about that forgiveness and restoration and redemption in our relationship with God. And yet we know that the, that the final restoration of all things um, of our, of us being able to get back into, into um, harmony with God and, and with each other is like, is what we're looking for in revelation, right? Is that, that, that where it's all going to be restored at the end of days, um, not necessarily just like it was at the beginning, but a new creation, new heaven and a new earth. Um, that's God's way of kind of, of saying, no, we're now we're going to live in peace and harmony again. And so that's the that's what we call the meta narrative scripture, the overarching um, um, narrative of scripture that's moving toward this idea of redemption and reconciliation of relationship being restored. Um, that is the heart of God is that we don't have to live broken apart from each other or apart from him anymore, but that we get to come together and be reconciled, that we get to come together and live in peace with each other. Shalom, as we say, um, that is the sense of like whole wholeness and well-being and, um, and, and peace, so to speak, um, with one another and with God. Like that's where this story is going. And so what happens is, is that God invites us to be part of that story. Like, it's not just about, it is about, it is about us being um, restored to God, but it's also about us being restored to each other because we are meant to be in relationship with one another. And it's, um, so it's like a both and kind of thing. So I want us to look um, specifically at the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, which is kind of like a microcosm of this, this big overarching narrative of scripture. I think we'll be able to kind of see the different parts of, of, um, of this, the narrative kind of running through the prodigal son story. So if you have Bibles, turn to, to Luke chapter 15. And we're gonna start in verse 11. All right, let me read for us for a second. Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. And a few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to, went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to, the, to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And he replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed and killed the fatty calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he came, became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so let's let's think through the story a little bit, and I want us to look at the different characters, um, the different the players of the story, and kind of get a sense of what where they're sitting and um, and what what the what this passage has to say to us. So, if we look at the prodigal son, um, the younger son, who um, who comes to his father and asks for his part of the inheritance. Now, if we think about it in terms of like the time, so the context that they were living in, we're talking about a patriarchal society that is um, that is that is that rotates around or basically is centered on a, 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 the oldest living male so the father in this story is the patriarch who um, is responsible for his clan for his family and has a certain like he has a responsibility to protect them to provide for them um, everything that they do get and goes through the father because um, he is the one who kind of is how how that's how the society is is arranged so like for us when when we are able to say like when we meet each other um we would say to each other like what what do you do that's one of the first questions that we would ask each other that's how we kind of identify ourselves in this culture the first thing you would ask is who is who's your father that's how you would identify yourself because your identity is 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 based on your family not based on who you are and what you do so this idea of like i'm a i'm my own person is very different than what we experience in our own culture um, and so for him to go to his father and say i want my inheritance means basically what he's saying to his father is you're no longer um i no longer you're no longer alive to me like i consider you dead and therefore um i want what's mine and I want to like separate myself. He's choosing to separate himself from his family. So this thing that is a huge part of his identity and how he would like be part of, of, of normal society. It's not just about like him going off. Like he's really um, literally tearing himself away from everything that he knows in every way that he's connected to, um, to, to his, to the, the, the larger society. Um, and so basically he's like, this is a huge insult to the father for him to basically say, um, you're dead to me is him like breaking relationship. So this idea we're talking about in, in scripture um, of 
what happened at the fall. So this idea of like breaking up relationship and basically like rebelling against God, rebelling against the father saying, you no longer are important to me. I don't need you basically. And choosing to go to the far country. So this is like when Jesus is telling the stories is his way of kind of recapturing what's happened in the meta narrative of scripture, the meta narrative of the story um, that the prodigal is like choosing to go his own way and, and basically has harmed the father um, has insulted him, has hurt him, and choosing to break relationship with him. And so we see the, the prodigal choose to like go off on his own, um, to do his own thing. And yet at some point he decides that he's made a mistake, right? He gets hungry. <laughs> Things aren't going the way that he planned. And so he thinks I can go back to my father's house, but not as a son, because he knows he's already like lost that privilege, right? I can go back and I can be a worker. I can be a slave in my father's house. Um, I don't, he doesn't expect to be restored fully um, to his, to his, to sonship, basically, because he knows he's already taken what was right, what was his rightfully and squandered it. So his, his expectation is that he's going to come back and get to be a slave in his father's house. When we look to the older brother, what we see there is also a break of relationship, even though he's decided to stay home, he's, he still is staying distant. And so when we get to that part of the story where the older brother is refusing to go into the celebration, he's basically rebelling against the father because the father would, would, the expectation would be that he would join in and be part of this celebration that his father is throwing. And instead he's choosing to stay out and stay distant and therefore has broken relationship with the father as well. So what we see in the story is both sons who need um, to be restored, basically both who have chosen to, to break relationship. When we look at the father, what we see is that the father chooses to come toward both of them, right? So we see this movement within the text of, of the father moving toward them rather than expecting them just to come toward him. So with the, the prodigal himself, when he decides to come home, what we see is the father choosing to, he moves toward the son while the son is still a long way off the father runs to him, which also culturally would have been um, not expected and scandalous, actually. So the father is actually um, putting himself in a lower state, a lower standard to be able to, to run to the son um, and repair this relationship to say no I, and, and restores him, right? Not only as a slave, he doesn't consider him a slave, but um, restores sonship to him, brings him back into the household. Um, and so this is a, I mean, this is like kind of a, a, like a crazy kind of idea, right? Because, you know, you, you would imagine that he would want the son to have to like uh, feel the consequences, which he has in some ways in, in the far country, but just for him to be able to like, just come right back into the family would be, would not be what would be expected. Um, and likewise, the father also moves toward the older brother. So the older brother is staying distant, staying outside and choosing not to come in. And so the father goes out to him, which would also be kind of a scandalous sort of thing for the father to do, to go out to him and basically plead with the older son to come in and be part of this celebration that's happening. And so what we see happening in the father is this idea of, um, of his bent toward forgiveness, that his, his desire for relationship to be restored is above all else. Like he's not worried about his reputation. He's not worried about how it looks or how they're going to, you know, even maybe what their response is going to be. The end of the story of the prodigal son leaves us like at a cliffhanger. We don't really know how the older brother is going to respond. 
but it's not as much about that as it is about the fact that the father's coming toward them and looking for um, a sense of restoration, sense of, of forgiveness and reconciliation. What I think is interesting about um, this is when we think about the time period that kind of elapsed between the time, like when the, the younger son um, was, had gone off to the far country and then like, and so he's, he's broken relationship, not just with the father, but with his brother as well. I think what's interesting and probably what we want to like pay attention to is the fact that like there's this time period that the father's having to um, think through and like and wrestle with what's just happened. And the brother is too, right? Like they're both having to have a sense of like feeling this sense of, of broken relationship. Things aren't as they should be, a sense of hurt um, for both of them that the son, that the younger son has has chosen to, to um, break away from the family. And yet we see when the younger son comes back that they respond very differently. The father um, is, has worked, you know, has kind of gone through his emotions enough to be able to receive the son back again, whereas the older brother um, is not able to do that. Is kind of standing outside and, and not sure that he wants to engage. So I think one thing about this story is just that it's not just about the son being reconciled to the father, but also the brothers being reconciled to each other. And that the point of all of it is this sense of a feast of God wanting to, to bring an end to it. Um, God wanting to like bring restoration, not only between himself and the prodigal son, the younger son, but also between the brothers himself. It's important to him that the older brother comes in too. Like he wants him to be part of the celebration too. He wants him to enjoy um, like the, the fruits of, of his labor, um, the fruits of the relationship that he enjoys with the father. And so it's, it is the sense of like the younger son being restored to the father, but also being restored to his older brother as well. And so that goes back to kind of what we were saying with that idea of covenant, with mo the Mosaic covenant, where God's saying, here's how we're going to live together like you and me between us. And here's how you're going to live together um, among yourselves. And that God desires um, a sense of shalom for all. Um, that a sense of peace for all between between him and us with each other as well. And so that's why I think it's important that we talk about this idea of forgiveness and reconciliation, because it's part of God's larger story um, that it is about God restoring us to himself, but also helping to restore us to each other. And as we are called to be God's people, we're also called to be people who seek out um, and are able to engage in this idea of forgiveness and when possible reconciliation. And that we're all being called um, to this idea of a feast or a celebration where we can rejoice and have a sense of joy in God's creation and a joy in, a sense in um, our relationship with God and a joy in our relationship with each other. And so I want to read um, just quickly from Isaiah 25, just this idea of like God's vision of the feast at the end of days when all is restored. Um, it's Isaiah 25 says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples. So that sense of like, sin that's come you know that, that was cast over us he will destroy that the sheet that is spread over all nations he will he will swallow up death forever then the lord god will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of all his people he will take away from all the earth for the lord has spoken it will be said on that day lo this is our god 
We have waited for him so that he might save. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And so this is kind of that idea of the feast that God is calling us all to, um, that we're being called together and that God um, will put us, you know, will make us where we're in harmony with him and with each other and that we get to celebrate. We get to have this sense of joy. And so our question for tonight is kind of like, how do we live into that reality now? Like, how do we start living into that reality of what God has for um, that's calling us to. And so as we've been talking about the revelation and talking about being Easter people of kind of what do we, how do we live in light of um, what the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection? um, What does that mean for us today? I think this is a huge part of it for us is how do we be people of forgiveness that who forgive and um, are willing to receive forgiveness, but also willing to extend forgiveness and also um, seek out reconciliation where it may be found. Um, so I want us to spend a few minutes, um, in groups kind of talking through this story with each other, kind of see what, how, how you can find yourself in the story. So I have two questions for you to talk about in breakout rooms. Um, the first question would be who, who in this story do you, do you relate to more? Um, the younger brother, the older brother, father, but when you read this story and you, and you can kind of like find yourself in it, where would you say that you relate more? And then the second question is, what would it look like to put yourself in another character's shoes, like another one of the players in this story? What would that look like? Can you imagine yourself as if the younger brother, as the older brother, or as the father, or all of those, like put yourself in all of those shoes, and what would that experience be like? So first question is, who in the story do you relate to more? And then who, um, what would it look like to put yourself in another character's shoes? How would that feel? What I'd like to do now is, is make a move um, towards like a, a real granular kind of practical level discussion about forgiveness. Um, I don't know how you grew up, um, or what your church background is or was, but for me, it was very, very black and white, the way forgiveness was talked about. You just forgive someone because Jesus forgives you. Um, and while, yes, that is true, um, and yet um, we know any, any of us who have lived you know, more than three years on this earth Um, And I say that because I have a three-year-old that struggles with forgiveness. We know that it can be a struggle at times. Um, So I want to get into that. And um, I want to start by just talking about what forgiveness is not. Because I think we've perhaps heard some unhelpful things about forgiveness. I know I have. Um, So I just want to go through a couple of points about what forgiveness is not. Then I'll talk about what forgiveness is. And then I'll get into like, what is the actual process? Because I believe, and I I think other um, folks would join me that, that forgiveness of the, of the dark, of the deeper, older harm, is very much um, a journey. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about what that journey can look like. And then finally I'll end talking a little bit about what does it, it mean to be 
stuck in a posture of unforgiveness. Um, so, and we'll have a couple moments um, in this portion of the teaching just to give you time for personal reflection. I'll ask you just some questions. We won't put you in rooms. It'll give you a chance to just jot down some ideas um, at certain points. And then um, at the end, we're gonna get y'all back together just to kind of process um, what this was like, what stood out to you, maybe even where you felt resistance or an invitation from the Lord. So hang in there for that. I think that can be rich time. So forgiveness, what it is not. Number one, forgiveness is not forgetting. You've probably heard the phrase, for, just forgive and forget. And I just wanna say from the outset, we are created to remember. It's part of what makes us human. Um, throughout scripture, especially if you read the Old Testament, we are called to remember. In fact, much of, of how we make sense of the world, and especially in the Old Testament um, with the Jewish story, how folks make sense of who God is and what his story is and what their story is, um, is all done through remembering. And part of that remembering is, is telling your children and asking them to remember. Um, to have faith, to have faith in God. Faith really at its core is remembering the goodness of God and remembering his promises. It gives us a firm place to stand. So to have faith um, it, to a large extent requires that we remember. And if you wanna get nerdy for a moment, like what we know about neuroscience now, especially in the past couple of decades, is that there's actually a direct, if not very complex relationship between the secretion of stress hormones in our brain and the encoding of memory. So it can in fact be the moments where we, we are harmed or where we're offended that our memories are most vivid. It can also be the opposite of that, by the way, if the, if the stress hormones go to very high levels, we can actually have no memories of those events. But there is a, a relationship between the stress we feel in a moment and how our brain encodes memories. So to have memories, to remember, in a great sense, is essential to what it means to be human. And where forgive and forget has been taught, especially in the church, I think to some extent we've taken scriptures like Isaiah 43, Jeremiah 31, where God says, I will remember your sins no more. And we have taken poetry, we have taken metaphor, and we put it sort of into our 21st century Western literal thinking. Um, and in many ways, frankly, forgive and forget has been used as a weapon of shame, rather than a weapon of freedom, or, or excuse me, rather than an invitation to freedom. The phrase like, well, you just need to forgive your father and move on. Forgiveness, in this sense, is actually being used to silence the person who's been harmed, rather to be an instrument in breaking the bonds of anger and bitterness. Um, on the other side of this kind of forgiveness, really, we get someone who has been silenced, not necessarily someone who's been freed. So this, this type of forgiveness really is in service of silence and denial and sometimes even erasing of truth 
and, and what has actually happened. So ultimately, forgive and forget is a cheap form of forgiveness. Um, and at this point, you might be asking, and maybe you should be asking, but what about once the offender has repented? Isn't that when we're called to forget? And I'll just say to not remember biblically is to not bring this, this offense back against the offender. Essentially, the balance of what he owes you must remain zero. But remembering the offense, remembering what happened, actually can serve to protect you from future harm. Because just because someone has repented, it doesn't necessarily that they've all of a sudden become a safe person. And I think in the example of abuse, this is actually very obvious. And the, this is just how our brains are made, actually. And we learn from harmful experiences in those parts of our brain so that we don't endanger ourselves again. That's how our brain is made to work. The Lord made our brain that way, to adapt our way away from harmful experiences. And I'll just say one more thing about remembering that's, that's very personal to me. Um, some of you may, may know that I'm in my second marriage. My first wife was repeatedly unfaithful to me, and it brought a lot of pain. Um, but I have fully forgiven her, and it, it took a lot of work to do that, but I have. But I still remember that pain. I remember what it felt like to realize that I was being betrayed. And I actually think that if I am sitting with someone who is experiencing betrayal, it, it just gives more power to my own testimony, to my presence with them to say, I actually know where you've been. I remember, I remember that feeling. So I guess my invitation here is, can we redeem a healthy understanding here of the goodness of remembering and not settle on the cheap form of forgiveness that, that I think is forgive and forget. Much more to say on that, of course, but I wanna move to point two. Forgiveness is not peace at any cost, which sacrifices honesty, integrity, and emotion. Really, this is very similar to forgive and forget. It's a type of forgiveness that denies the truth, that denies reality. I think this too is kind of a form of silencing. I'm reminded of chapter six of Jeremiah, when the prophet says, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Forgiveness should not require a departure from reality or a departure from truth. Connected to this, number three, forgiveness is not a denial or an excusing of the wrong that was committed. And connected to that, it's not necessarily even an end to our hurt or our pain. Forgiveness does not cancel all the consequences. Sometimes we will continue to hurt, and maybe sometimes that is one of those lasting consequences. The question in that case becomes really, what do we do with that pain? Do we transmit it or do we transform it? But that's, that's for another talk. 
Number four, forgiveness is rarely a moment in time transaction. It involves much more of a process. And like I said, I'm gonna say much more on that in just a moment. And then number five, forgiveness is not reconciliation. It's not a guarantee of future reconciliation. Even though, as, as Amy pointed to, reconciliation is the ultimate goal. We want to invite people to that party. The party is the goal. Forgiveness is the bridge. So I just wanna state again very clearly, we forgive out of a hunger for reconciliation, even when our offender shows no desire for repentance, even when we may not see reconciliation this side of heaven. And I just wanna say, if that's hard to hear, do you think Jesus knows anything about this? You know, he shared bread and wine with Judas right before his betrayal. He hung on the cross and he asked his father to forgive his executioners while they were casting lots over his clothing. The goal is the party. It may not happen this side of heaven, but that has to be our motivation or else we just get the crucifixion without the resurrection. But we also have to say, while forgiveness makes reconciliation possible, like I said, it does not cause it. And to enter into the complexities of reconciliation, now I'm, I realize I'm getting into like another couple of hours and really another workshop. Reconciliation is a whole nother topic. Um, but I will say a few things because I know we can't think about forgiveness divorce from reconciliation. So number one, reconciliation, it's just so particularized. It can look very different in very different scenarios. And it may range on one end of the spectrum from a fully restored relationship that's actually stronger and deeper than before the offense ever occurred. And on the other side of the spectrum, it may simply end in the relationship it, it may simply mean the relationship ends, but you're still desiring the good of the person who offended you. So reconciliation can, it just falls across a very long spectrum. Either way, at either extreme, reconciliation does not mean that things go back to the way they were before the harm was committed. They may be better, they might be different but they're very likely not gonna be the same, at least not this side of heaven. The second thing I wanna say about reconciliation is that sometimes reconciliation just may simply not be possible. And it, and it grieves my heart to say those words out loud. This side of heaven, because it requires repentance from the person that harms you. If, if um, we can offer forgiveness, but to have it granted, it must be received by repentance from the offending party. And maybe it's helpful here to distinguish between forgiving and being forgiven. Forgiving is the act of the person who was harmed. Being forgiven is experienced by the one who has done the harming once they have repented. In this sense, 
Repentance is the response to forgiveness. And reconciliation then is the hoped for fruit of repentance. The hoped for fruit of repentance. Um, I was reading one scholar and he said, forgiveness is like leaving a gift at someone's door. Um, repentance is like them opening the door and unwrapping the gift. So it's our job to leave the gift, but we can't open the gift for them. That's where repentance comes in and the gift must be opened, just like the older brother must open that door on his own volition. The dad was not gonna drag him into that party. Miroslav Volf, who's one of the, and I'll, and I'll post some of my resources in the chat a little bit later, but Miroslav Slav Volf is one of the authors that I read. And he said, forgivers forgiving is not conditioned by repentance. The offenders being forgiven, however, is conditioned by repentance, just as being given a box of chocolate is conditioned by receiving that box of chocolate. So again, a box of chocolate that just sits on a doorstep, well, it melts, right? It's not enjoyed. So reconciliation is just most often, it's a long thought out for process that involves both parties. And I wish we could spend a lot more time on reconciliation, um, but we're talking about forgiveness tonight because I believe that much of what stands in the way of reconciliation, the reconciliation that maybe you're desiring for someone you have in mind is actually a proper engagement of forgiveness. So let's talk now about what forgiveness is. But before I move to that, I just wanna give you a moment to reflect. And this isn't a discussion, but maybe if you have a pen or you just want to think, or you want to write a couple of things down, I want you to take, let's say three minutes. And I want you to reflect on ways in which you've maybe tried to embrace a cheaper form of forgiveness, like a form of forgiveness that just hasn't worked quite frankly. And where has this process of forgiveness felt more harmful to you than actually liberating? So just take a few moments and reflect and maybe um, you wanna jot a few things down. I'll let you do that and then I'll start in about three minutes. I wanna move now to what forgiveness is. Forgiveness first and foremost is a form of love. And I wanna read from 1 John chapter four, several verses. And I just want you to pay attention to how many times the word love is used and in what context it's being used. This is just beautiful language. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his son, his one and only son, into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. So we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. That perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. That one just hurts. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So do you see the connection there between love and between giving, between love and sacrifice, between love and forgiveness? Jesus on the cross, between love and the refusal to remain in hate. Dallas Willard, who we quote around here a lot, um, he says, you can't love well and have a problem with forgiveness. And if you look at Romans 12, verses 17 and following, we're actually told, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, forgiveness is food for your enemy. <laughs> if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. This is one way in which the gospel flips everything on its head. We can overcome evil with good. So in this way, forgiveness is one way in which we participate in the kingdom of heaven, which is simply what God is up to. And God is up to forgiveness. So we should be up to forgiveness. And again, I will say that this kingdom of heaven work does not stop simply at forgiveness, but hungers for the consummation of forgiveness, for reconciliation, the invitation to the party. Again, to, to quote Wolf, he says, in the Christian account of things, we forgive because we love, specifically because we love our debtors, our offenders, and even our enemies. The same love that motivates forgiveness pushes forgiveness not just from exclusion to neutrality, I forgive you, but from neutrality to embrace, come into the party. Forgiveness between human beings is one crucial step in a larger process whose final goal is the embrace of former enemies in a community of love. It's, you might be saying that sounds really great, Wolf, but how do we do that? 
So if you're asking that question, you're in good company. Please hang in there. So like love, then forgiveness, and this is number two, forgiveness, and to clarify here, also our ability to forgive is a gift. Now, this point may be one of controversy, but I'll let you disagree with Dallas Willard instead of me. Um, in a talk that he gave on forgiveness, he makes the assertion actually that forgiveness is a gift, not a discipline. Just think about that for a moment. There's huge implications here. Um, for one, you can, you can, hopefully you can begin to see how forgiveness out of white knuckled obligation on one hand or self-righteousness on the other, that, or because that's just what I'm supposed to do as a Christian, it's just not what God intended. That's not the invitation to the party. Yes, we are commanded to forgive. I wanna be clear about that. But we are also commanded to love. And I don't think anyone would argue that we can just love on command or that we can love well at least and completely out of our own sheer will and determination. There's something about forgiveness that like love is something of a participation in heavenly things, which is to say that it's a gift. And if you have ever loved well, especially someone who is hard to love, you know that that's a gift. Yes, it requires work, but there's something that is outside of yourself that's going on. And I think the same is true of forgiveness. I, want, I was gonna talk a little bit about forgiveness and having children. Um, Dallas Willard says some interesting things about how you just say, all right, now you forgive your, your sister. You say you're sorry, you say forgive your sister. And I'm not gonna go into this right now, but I can share this if you like, but it, he basically says, um, and I've done this with my own kids. He says, you're, we're just, you're treating them to live in hypocrisy and pretense. We've got to give our kids time too. We've got to let them embrace the process. Um, so if you're more interested in what he has to say with that, like I said, um, I'll share that link. But it gets nuanced here because you might be saying, yeah, but there is, there is work. There are disciplines. And, I, and I'll just say, and this is where Dallas Willard goes here. He says, there are disciplines that we engage in that better enable us to receive this gift that is the ability to forgive. Disciplines like prayer, like fasting, like resting in God. Um, these are certainly spiritual disciplines that can transform our heart and give us the gift of a forgiving heart. Um, and I wanna talk more about those disciplines in a moment. So forgiveness is a gift. Number three, forgiveness is the canceling of a debt that's owed to us. It's a refusal to make someone pay. It's a refusal to seek retribution. So said another way, it's going to cost you something. And frankly, sometimes we're unwilling to forgive because we have not counted the cost like the king going to war or the, the uh, tower builder in Luke 14, like we just haven't counted the cost of what it means to forgive. And we don't want to. And I get it. Because what is that cost? Well, what was that cost for Jesus? 
forgiveness for Jesus was a journey of suffering that culminated in the cross. It cost Jesus his very life. And the journey to real forgiveness almost is always going to include pain and suffering that can feel sometimes like death. And, and make no mistake, there is something that has to die. And that's our entitlement to revenge, our desire to make our offender pay. The way Wolf says it, he says, we have to swallow up evil into ourselves, And that's just hard work. So if you're struggling with forgiveness, can you stop for a moment and just show yourself some kindness? And further, just be curious about where in the process you're getting stuck. And I want to give you a few minutes again, just to do some reflection. Um, maybe take a few moments now and reflect on where you've been stuck with forgiveness and maybe a specific person comes to mind. What do you think is getting you stuck? Can you name that? So take a few minutes and, and reflect and, and I'll call you back about 821. Okay. I want to talk now about how do we forgive? And just as a, as a disclaimer, the specific moment of offering forgiveness is most simply what we say to our children. It's the naming of the offense to the offender and then canceling the debt that you feel is owed to you. Um, so in the case of someone eating the piece of pizza that you saved in the work fridge, uh, yes, this can be a pretty isolated and relatively short interaction probably, or it should be. <laughs> but for anyone who has suffered more complex and deeper relational harm, we just know it's not that simple. There's more of a process that gets us to this point of forgiveness. And that's what I wanna talk about now. And, and I should say this sequence that I'm gonna walk through, uh, it's, it's a roadmap, which is to say your route may look somewhat different. Um, I'm certainly not suggesting that this process is necessarily linear. Um, there is kind of a faithful wandering here, if you will. But the point is, are you making movement? And are you doing those things which require movement towards forgiveness, towards desiring um, for that person to enter the party. So first, we have to name the harm and the offense with particularity. With particularity. Not just, well, I guess I forgive my dad. That's not particular. I forgive my dad for not being available to me when I needed him. I forgive my dad for yelling at me when I was playing soccer. We have to be, we have to be particular when we start to name the harm. And I just wanna say like, at this point, 
depending on where you are. Again, if it's the pizza, yeah, you can probably go straight to the person and say, hey, you know, I was saving that. I was really looking forward to that pizza. I don't have any other lunch. Um, but if it's something deeper, which is what we're talking about right now, at first I would say, and you have to use your judgment here, but at first name the harm to yourself. Be honest about it. Maybe even make a list, share it with God. Maybe there's a trusted friend that you would share it with, but name the harm with particularity. And I just want to say often what is mistaken as a spirit of unforgiveness or a feeling of not being ready to forgive is actually an unwillingness to enter the full depth of our harm. Because when we do that, all sorts of emotions come up and they're hard emotions and they're scary emotions. So without fail, naming the harm is going to bring up emotion. And so that's number two, we have to enter the full landscape of our emotions. A lot of times this starts with rage, maybe even rage at God, which is okay. He can take it. You may need to wrestle with God. You may need to invite him into the particularity of your harm, your betrayal, and ask him why. I think we could all stand to be a little more like Jacob and wrestle with our Lord. And sometimes at this point, talking to folks, and this has been true for me, as I've been able to name specific harm, I start to get angry and I feel initially less willing to forgive. So I just want to name that. That may happen. I'm just more angry now because now I'm digging up these emotions. Wait a minute, why, how is this useful? I feel less willing to forgive now. But this is part of the process because we have to be honest about what we are forgiving someone for. So that rage, that anger, that you will feel, um, it will gradually move into grief and sadness. And this is where we just have to invite the Lord and trusted friends into that pain to sit with us. Grief, y'all, is the doorway to forgiveness. I really believe that and I've experienced that. It's through grieving that we learn to surrender. And so much of forgiveness is a posture of surrender. And I'll just say these first two steps, this naming the harm, entering the emotions, this is really the hard work, the work of this journey to forgiveness. And it can take time and we have to give ourselves time. Then number three, we want to remember God and we want to rest in God. We want to remember God's kindness and his goodness toward us that he has forgiven us for harming others, for sinning against others, which is a sin against him. So we have to remember God's faithfulness, his sacrifice. And then we have to rest in God. We have to find our fullness in him. This is where we're starting to let go of that need for revenge. I really think that rest is a prerequisite for forgiveness. 
we will not likely forgive from a place of hurry or anxiety or scarcity. And again, I'll, I'll just speak from experience. When I'm tired, I'm not feeling really giving and forgiveness is a form of giving. Dallas Willard, in, in that talk I referenced, he says, we cannot forgive from a prayerless, impoverished, weakened existence. Number four, we have to examine and tend to the posture of our heart towards the person who offended us, who harmed us. We have to be honest and ask ourselves and the Lord as we go through this process, what is the posture of my heart towards this person? How is it changing? Is it changing? Is there still contempt? Is there still this desire for vengeance? Is my move towards forgiveness simply born out of self-righteousness? Is my move towards forgiveness being motivated by obligation or primarily just to bring peace? I just want everyone to just be okay. So I'm just going to do this thing. Or are you truly hungering for reconciliation? For your offender to repent and to join the party? Again, it needs to be said, reconciliation does not mean that things go back to the way they were beforehand. So said another way, is your heart for that person moving towards compassion and kindness? Guys, if it's the kindness of God that leads to our repentance, the same I think is true about our posture towards the people who have harmed us. Like, can we actually move to a place of kindness? And again, that is kindness with shrewdness. I'm not asking you to be careless or put yourself back into a dangerous situation. But can you want and desire their redemption? I mean, look, this is ultimately spiritual work, isn't it? This is work that your enemy does not want you to do. So we have to be engaging in stillness and rest and prayer and examine. We have to give our heart over to the Lord for protection. Because sometimes, honestly, a move towards forgiveness doesn't go well sometimes. It might actually invite warfare. Because while the posture of your heart may be changing, this may not be true for your offender. So can you trust the Lord with your heart and ask him for wisdom as you seek the path forward? So this is where these last two things I'm talking about, resting in God, remembering God, tending to the posture of your heart, being honest about that before the Lord and trusted friends. This, these are those spiritual disciplines that I referenced earlier that I think they are disciplines to, to be restful, to sit in silence, to be in prayer, to examine ourselves. These are disciplines that move us, I think, into the good dirt of God's garden of grace, where we discover that, that gift, which is the ability to forgive. And that's the last step is, can we embrace the gift and the mystery that is forgiveness? As we, as we continue to tend to the posture of our heart with God, I really believe he gives us a sense. And if you've been able to forgive someone after 
a period of time, you know this. Um, if you listen to Bonnie's God story, you, you heard it in her story. We get a sense of when we have received this gift of the ability to forgive. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Um, I think it looks differently, a little bit differently for everyone. But if you've received that gift, I think you know what it feels like. And again, this is one of those spiritual things that can only really be learned through experience. But certainly, if you're looking at a dashboard, a heart that has softened, a heart that has moved towards kindness and compassion, these are good indications that you're probably moving towards forgiveness. Maybe you're ready. And to say you're ready, just to say forgiveness is also the bridge to more forgiveness. So can I ask you, where can you begin? What small thing can you forgive as a beginning? So forgiveness is a process. And at this point, I just want to address a question that may be looming. Can I forgive? Can I just forgive someone in my heart? Or do I go straight to them and forgive them in person? And again, this is nuance. But if our ultimate motivation for forgiveness is for reconciliation in whatever form that's possible, then our goal should be, a, be to look our offender in the eye, name the harm, and say, I forgive you. That's not always possible though, and it's not always safe. And I think that needs to be named. Much of the forgiveness I think that we engage this side of heaven is, is simply incomplete or not fully consummated. Because to fully consummate forgiveness, it requires that we, well, first receive the gift of forgiveness from the Lord as our own sin, forgiveness of our own sins. And then passing that gift on the per to the person who has offended us. And that requires interaction with that person. And then that person actually, like we said, opening the chocolate, receiving the gift, agreeing to the harm and repenting. And it's that complete forgiveness that fully opens the door to that party, to reconciliation. But sometimes that kind of completed forgiveness, I just think we need to name, is just not always possible this side of heaven for a multitude of reasons. And this is where I would just say, continue to seek the wisdom of the Lord and of trusted friends. So this is, I think, speaking to just the fact that forgiveness, especially of the deeper things, the older things, it, it requires a process, a process of honesty with ourselves, engagement with our heart, engagement with the Lord, maybe even engagement with trusted friends. Before I send you to breakout rooms, I just wanna talk briefly about the dangers of unforgiveness. And just to say, like, if you're feeling that you're in a posture of unforgiveness, this does not necessarily mean you're a bad Christian. There's so much that can be lying underneath an unwillingness to forgive. So as I mentioned earlier, a posture of unforgiveness so often is just an indication that maybe that we're not ready to feel the range of emotions that would come if we actually engage the particularity of the harm against us. So in this sense, forgiveness can actually be our attempt, our heart's attempt to protect itself and probably for good reason. So again, can we be kind towards ourselves? 
can we be curious? And often shame is one of those emotions that can be a huge impediment to forgiveness. Often the shame, maybe it's shrouded in contempt towards the offender, towards ourself, maybe both. Unforgiveness can also be an unwillingness though to entertain our desire for reconciliation. An unwillingness to do that wrestling I was talking about earlier. In this case, it's a wrestling with our ambivalence, which which just means wanting two opposite things at the same time. On one hand, I don't don't ever want to see that person again, but I really want them to run to me and give me a hug. Have you ever felt that? That ambivalence is so difficult for us to hold. It's so difficult for our hearts to hold. So, so much of the time, our heart is in such a bind because the people that have hurt us the most are so often the people whose embrace we desire the most. And yet I will say also, sometimes unforgiveness is our attempt to manage or control the person who's offended us, to maintain a sense of power over them. And of course, as if you've experienced this, um, the irony here is that in engaging this, this posture of assumed um, power, over the person that they, it's actually them that has, have, that has the power um, over us so often. So let's just say it, it's far more costly not to forgive. Um, John asked a question. I just want to jump over here to the, to the chat. He said, can you say more about shame's role? Um, you know, I think so much of, you know, what we're, the ways in which we've been harmed because the, the, the DNA of shame is a break in relationship. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to reverse that. That's the whole goal of forgiveness that leads to reconciliation. So, so often um, there's shame tied up in this posture of unforgiveness. Um, Maybe the way in which we were harmed actually bring shame. Um, that's certainly a, true for, for so much of the landscape of abuse. Um, maybe the emotions that we feel bring shame. Um, maybe I haven't been taught how to deal with emotions. Maybe emotions were not welcomed in my family of origin. Maybe I was told to go to my room my parents could not handle my emotions. So to have emotions in that case is a form of shame. So we're going to start tending to the particularity of the harm, which inevitably brings up emotions. You know, sometimes shame like weeds grows alongside those emotions when they come up. And so I just think it's good to be aware of that and to name that. And again, the best, um, antidote for shame is is to feel it in the in the community of trusted people who love you and can uh, tell you what the lie is and tell you what the truth is so again shame is a huge topic um, but john thanks for that question um, so yeah it's it's just far more costly not to forgive if we if we if we cut people off Ultimately, we're cutting our heart off from desire because we were not made for division with people. 
we were made for heaven. And if we cut ourselves off from people, we cut our heart off from desire, even if it's so buried. Even if you're so mad at your dad, you're so mad at your sister, can you be honest about that deep desire for that not to be the case? And when we cut people off, we cut ourselves off from desire, which can begin to harden our hearts. And then we become people who are controlled by the harm that's been done to us. Unforgiveness, it keeps us in bondage. It actually, Dallas Willard said, it actually serves in some sense to cut us off from God because unforgiveness is ultimately always, like sin, unforgiveness against God. The person who is unforgiving, he goes on, is leaving their wound open and unhealed. And in a sense, that's cutting part of you off from participation in the kingdom of God. And I say that again, back to John's comment about shame. That is not a way to shame you into forgiving because don't we all wanna be a part of the kingdom of God? It's rather an invitation to be curious about the places in which you're stuck in this process. So I wanna end just by reading from chapter four of Ephesians verse 30 and following, which I think in this topic of forgiveness versus unforgiveness, it just paints a good picture of the difference between a forgiving heart and an unforgiving heart. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So we don't forgive just so we get rid of our bitterness. We forgive because we want to invite folks to the party. But certainly, the dissolving of that bitterness and rage and anger is, is one helpful byproduct of entering this journey of forgiveness. Movement, again, looking at our dashboard, movement towards kindness and compassion is what marks a forgiving heart.